you take your seats, if you take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, and tonight really the first half of a study uh, that will be the table of nations as it's often referred to. And as with all things in the book of Genesis, they do form the background for our understanding of the world that we live in. And so as these nations are described in so much as we know about history and in so much as we know about uh, the world as we currently live in it and its association with its past, we ought to be able to find within these lists of nations uh, some kind of link to what we know historically about the world that we live in. And it's extremely interesting when you uh, study ethnology or the study of peoples and people groups and you, you begin to look back on the world as it once was, and you try and imagine mankind having been on the earth for perhaps millions of years, and you kind of have to ask yourself a fairly simple question, where is all the evidence of all of those people who used to be here if we have in fact been here that long? Because the world as we know it has watched its population uh, triple and then quadruple in the last 150 years. And so if there were in fact millions of people or perhaps billions of people, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even worse yet millions of years ago, we ought to find the skeletal evidence, the remains of those people scattered all over the globe and we simply do not find that to be true. And so here is a simple list, and it is in fact the genealogies of the sons of Noah. So when the ark door is opened, you have Noah, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. So from those eight people, your Bible then begins to describe a number of different people groups that are linked to our history. And in fact, so much accuracy is contained within this list that it is actually the only verified and the only list that exists in all of antiquity. And so it's the one place that even secular historians have gone, secular historians like Herodotus, the father of history, went to the Hebrew Scriptures to look and see if there was, in fact, a link to the peoples that were on the earth during his time. And so from 500 B.C. until this present day, the most accurate list that exists in all of antiquity is your Bible. And so we're going to look at the first nine verses tonight. If you join me in prayer, and we'll take uh, verses 1 through 9 here in Genesis 10. And a very interesting name is found here uh, in verse 2, and certainly interesting in regards to what's going on in the world today, and we'll spend a little bit of time uh, highlighting him. Father, we thank you for the wonderful things that we can discover as we study your word, and we pray that as we read these genealogies, Lord, they could be boring if we were simply looking at some names that might be tough for some of us to pronounce. But God, there's history involved here, and it's really the only historical list of ancient nations that ties uh, the entire continent uh, of Asia together and ultimately 
uh, all of us through a single brotherhood of mankind. And we pray that you would bless us as we read this now and help us to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 through 9, Genesis chapter 10. And we'll look at them uh, as an entirety here uh, because they are actually a list with some details in there that are extremely important for us to understand. And now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. So it becomes very clear uh, that there's a single family that's in view here. Uh, It is the family that was remaining in the ark and came out of the ark, and it tells us so. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Now remind yourself that it's important for us to put this into a Hebrew context. And so uh, when it says sons were born, the reason that it only says sons and does not say daughters is that was the way history was recorded for the, the Semite people, the Hebrew people, which they would be called as they descend from Shem. Uh, But it was very common that the genealogies went through the men, and so there were also implied here daughters, and we're not told who they are, nor do we know exactly that these are the only sons that were born, and in fact, it is highly likely that these are not the only sons, because we see one very long list containing uh, down to six generations, the the generations of Japheth, uh, but we only find... Uh, for Ham, or excuse me, the sixth generation down through Shem, but for, uh, for Japheth and Ham, we only find, in essence, three generations mentioned there. It is not an inclusive list of all of the sons and all of the daughters. It is simply representative. And the point there is we're trying to find out, does this fit the world that we live in? And so it says, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, Tiras. And the sons of Gomer, so now you've got some great-grandchildren. So you have children, great-grandchildren. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, Tagarma. And the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. And these are the coastland peoples of the Gentile that were separated into their lands. Now notice what it says here in verse 5. And again, this ties into what we discovered in chapter 9, uh, that the Bible doesn't use the term and it doesn't really, it isn't indicative of race. In other words, when we think of race, we generally think of ethnicity. The Bible uses terms that are far more general and more inclusive. And those inclusive terms are into their lands everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. So you, so you can see that after the flood, as people began to spread out, and people began to have children, and now imagine the world that was then, and this is important, and I don't mean to sensationalize it, uh, but it is also the truth. And so you have these generations, they are primarily an agrarian society, Uh, We're going to see that hunting is going to come into the picture here, but they're largely raising what we would call vegetables and fruits. Um, They're doing some uh, hunting at that time, but they were an agrarian society, an agrarian society that did not have any of the things that we have today. They didn't go to the movies. Uh, they, they, They didn't have books. They had no television Uh, There was no social media. 
there was little to do except to enjoy the creation, do work so that you could feed your family, and have a whole lot of babies. And so it would be very sensible to think that generations as we think of them now, some of you that are older in this room, I was talking with uh, Connie's mom and dad just a couple of days ago, and there are members of their family that grew up around the turn of the century. It was not at all uncommon for young ladies to be married at 14 or 15 years old. It was fairly common for that to happen a hundred years ago. So you can imagine if the cultural context is that your purpose is to enjoy God's creation, to tend it, to provide for your own family, and to fruitfully multiply on the face of the earth, uh, these generations are not going to be people that go from birth to 25 or 30 years old before they're they're having children. They're going to be having children a whole bunch earlier, and they're going to be having a whole bunch more of them because there is no such thing as birth control at that point in time. And so it is easy to assume that the population would have expanded very rapidly over a handful of generations. You're talking about thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, ultimately within probably ten generations or so. And so from there, it's going to exponentially explode. Once you get to 100,000 or so, it's going to turn into millions fairly quickly. And so... Begin to think that way as opposed to our modern way to where you have a mom and a dad and they go through a long period of dating. They kind of decide, well, we kind of sort of like each other, but, you know, we're going to hang out until our parents kick us out of the house. And uh, when we're 25 or 30 years old, and then we're going to be selfish and not give our mom and dad grandchildren. And I'm not saying anything right now, but it's... For those of you that are grandparents and you want grandkids, say amen. Uh, no, it, it, you, you can see we live in a very different world. And we cannot apply what we think about our world today to the world that was then. It does not fit the cultural context. And so this is a place where context of the culture and the time is extremely important they would have immediately begun to think along the lines of having children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, probably great-great-grandchildren, and maybe even great-great-great-grandchildren because they're living a very, very, very long time. They're living hundreds of years still at this point in time. And so there are going to be a whole lot of children. And so he lists some of the original children and grandchildren. And from these people, these coastland peoples of the Gentiles, who were separated into their lands, to his language, families, and ultimately nations. And nations are comprised out of people who generally have gotten together for a social construct. The smallest unit of any nation is the family. That family turns into a small town or a community, that town or community into a city, that city into the bigger unit called a nation. Then the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizarim, Put, Canaan, and hang on to the name Canaan, it's still a huge one uh, in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to this day, 
for they are in fact the original inhabitants of the promised land. The sons of Cush were uh, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabekta, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. And for those of you that have paid attention to your Bible as you've read through it, you know that we see them again. And so there are some familiar names that are mixed in with these children, these sons of Shemham and Japheth. And Cush begot Nimrod. And Nimrod's going to be another one that is going to be the founder of an entire people group. And so this is the, this is the foundation. So if we can find links in these names to the peoples of the earth, which we can, and we look back on history, and secular history verifies that these are actually the founders of those particular nations, then you can kind of say, you know, there's a whole bunch of truth here in the scriptures that God has left us so that we might know how the world got to the way it is. And I believe that we're going to be able to do a little bit of that tonight in our remaining time. And he began to be the mighty one, or a mighty one, on the earth. And it's interesting that there's a designation there for Nimrod. Because he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter is before the Lord. And so you have all of these children, and we're going to take a look at them uh, as we kind of journey through this list. And as you look at them, even Dr. William W. William F. Albright, as he kind of authored a number of books on ancient history, considered and universally acknowledged, by the way, as the authority on archaeology with regard to the Near East. And so if you read anything, uh, if it has his stamp on it, uh, he says this about the Table of Nations here in Genesis 10. It stands absolutely alone in ancient literature. And this is directly from his book on the Table of Nations. He says, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework, the table of nations remains astonishingly, astonishingly an accurate document. So here you have a historian who was not a follower of Christ, uh, though he did believe in the historicity of the Bible. Uh, and he says, look, it appears to be exactly what we think. And so we see these links between Noah and his sons. In other words, between Noah and the antediluvians, those people who existed prior to the flood and those who existed after the flood. And this is an extremely important link because what you have before the flood, every bit of the evidence is erased except for Noah and his family. So everything else is altered and shaped by the flood itself. Only Noah is the remainder of God's, in essence, his original creation, except for the seeds and the things that existed in this floating mass of what was left after this catastrophic event. And so this whole thing begins very much to look like a personal family record. And so Shem, the father of the Semites, and again, I want to remind you that Semite people includes both Arabs and Jews. It's not just the Jewish people, it's also the Arab peoples. And so you have Shem is the is the in essence the the patriarch of that particular branch, uh, and as one of Noah's three sons, he would be the one that would be most interested in keeping some type of a, a documentation 
because it would be through him that his father Noah has received this understanding that there was a promise made through Adam that one day the seed of Adam's loins would crush the head of the serpent. So somebody from the other side of the flood has to be left alive, and it is going to ultimately be this family of Shem. And so uh, we see his record being significantly longer. Uh, Remember that after the flood, Noah's going to live about 500, actually 502 years, and he's going to have all kinds of family on the face of the earth. And so Ham and Japheth, their third generations are mentioned here, Shem's all the way to the sixth generation. And so as he kind of signs this document uh, in, in verse 10, he provides in that sense the only first-hand link, the only first-hand link between what was the past after, or before the flood and now the history of after the flood. So when we begin to read these things, we want to be looking at the world in that context. And there, there is no other document that compares to it. There's nothing else that you can go to. There is no categorical list. But the crazy thing is, almost without exception in this list of names, we do find all of these names or a variation or type of them listed in secular history. And so as we look back, we're going to see if these particular names uh, can be found throughout uh, the historical record. And so it begins in verse 1, And now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were born sons after the flood. And so uh, Shem takes over the task, if you will, of recording this history. We do not know how he recorded it, uh, but we do know because of the outcome of it, and the outcome of it is that it was true uh, that up until the time of the Tower of Babel, which we'll get to very, very shortly, and that God confuses the peoples of the earth because they're working together, but they're working together towards evil. God says, look, I'll solve this problem. I'm going to make it so they can't communicate. He doesn't make it so that they're different in the sense that they're just different. He makes it so that they're unable to corroborate uh, and, and collaborate. He, he makes it so they, they can't talk to each other, in essence, to try and get mankind uh, off of this collision course with God because they'd been on that path before. And so as we kind of assume Shem uh, compiles this original uh, particular list, he begins with Japheth's seven sons. And so let's start to look at them. Now, this is actually the easiest group to trace back. If you go through Scripture, um, even in secular history, you're going to find these of uh, the great the great historian and actually the author of ancient history. If you look at the founder of the the person that is credited, if you go do a Google search, you pull out your phone, uh, who's the father of history? You're going to come up with Herodotus. Um, he's going to be the guy that you're going to see listed there. And in fact, his works on ancient history are unparalleled. And he agrees with the vast majority of the names that are used here, as does Plutarch. And so Plutarch, uh, also being a tremendously accurate historian, uh, begins this list of names, and he starts talking about Japheth himself, uh, and, and begins by identifying some of these people within the confines of what we know about ancient history of the time that's roughly uh, 1,500 years B.C. and forward. Uh, and so we, we can look at these things. And Lepetos was actually the original uh, Greek name that's assigned to, to Japheth. Uh, 
Uh, And also to the Aryans, believe it or not, the Aryan peoples actually settled in India. So we happen to think of Aryans as being white people and European when history actually declares that they primarily settled in India. And so here's this first group of people. They are going to also be tied to the ancient Greeks. And then we have the name Gomer come up. Gomer was directly associated with and until about the early 1800s, there were even provinces of what we call modern-day Crimea that were considered the land of Gomer. And so if you remember, about a year and a half ago, uh, the Russians actually invaded the Crimean Peninsula and took over that land. These are all nations that are principally centered around the Black Sea. And so it would make quite a bit of sense if this whole event happened someplace in the central Middle East, as we would call it today, that they're not going to wander too terribly far. They're going to separate into their family units, and they're going to grow, and they're going to need property to do that. Uh, But you should be able to find them in a general area, and that is exactly what history tells us. And so from Gomer, we find three of Gomer's sons. And, And Gomer's sons are very easily identifiable, because the first of them uh, is, is in this province of, of Crimea, also identified there. But you have Ashkenaz, Raphath, and Togarma. If you're a student of history, one of the things that you know about the Second World War is that almost all of eastern Germany and much of Poland was occupied by none other than the Ashkenazi which are the German Jews. And so up until the 1940s, the Ashkenazi, named after Ashkenaz, uh, were still found in the area of Germany. And so we can associate Gomer with the region of both eastern and western Germany, settling these are Indo-European nations or Indo-European peoples, if you want to look at them that way. Uh, You have a direct connection with Rapath to the Carpathians. And so the Carpathians... Uh, Also in the area of the Slavic people. So again, these are Indo-European, all the way from India, all the way across the north, and including, we're going to see, much of what we would call Russia as well. And so uh, Tagarma associated, and in fact, again, until very recently, uh, if you were to talk to someone who lived in southern Turkey, who had been around during the period of history of, of time, most of you probably know Uh, that more than a million Armenians were wiped out in the Armenian genocide because they were primarily Christians. But in the southern part of Turkey today, which is now uh, largely Islamic, largely Muslim, uh, that whole region, in fact, uh, was known as Togarma. And so Togarma is also in this area that we would call the uh, Indo-European area of, of Europe and Asia today. And so when you begin to break all of these things down, we now switch and we begin to look at Japheth's sons. And in them, other than Gomer, the first name that we come across is a very interesting name. Because this is a name that we're going to see a lot more in the news uh, as we begin to watch the very last days of mankind's time here on earth come to pass. And that is the name Magog. And so we're going to look at this in some detail tonight. Uh, We will eventually cover the book of Ezekiel, and hopefully we'll elaborate on some of this. Uh, But the modern-day Republic of Georgia, up by the Black Sea, associated 
uh, with, with these peoples as well. And, and so as you, you begin to look at Magog, this singular son, uh, we, we find this place of Gog. That's what this name actually means. It means the place of Gog. And Flavius Josephus himself, one of the great histories uh, of Roman times, a Roman Jew, uh, says that Magog was the prince or the ruler, and he was an ancestor of the Scythians, and the Scythians originally inhabited, again, the area around the Black Sea. And so as Magog begins to unfold, we find out some of the other sons, and those sons are Meshach, Rosh, and Tubal. And so when you begin to think on these names, there's another place that we find these exact same names, and they're in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 38. And they're listed there in this context of this larger coalition of nations that in the very last days are going to come against Israel. They will be the final, in essence, war that's going to happen before the return of the Lord, before the battle of Armageddon. There will be a consortium of nations that will join together. So if you want to turn there, we're going to turn now to Ezekiel 38 uh, and take a look at at this particular singular son uh, who's known by, in essence, three other children, Rosh, Meshach, and to ball. Verse 1, Ezekiel 38. And now the word of the Lord came to me. Now imagine this is a little more than a thousand years later. So these words of Ezekiel written at least a thousand years uh, after the words that are recorded for us in, in Genesis chapter 10, at least, maybe significantly more than that. And now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog. So these names that we've seen are in a very large region that go all the way from Western Europe, wrap around the Black Sea, and go all the way to India. So imagine that group of nations. And now notice what it says. The prince of Rosh. Meshach and Tubal. And against him say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am coming against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws, and I will lead you out with all your army, your horses, your horsemen, all splendidly clothed, with a great company, with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia... Ethiopia, Libya are with them, and of them with the shield and helmet, Gomer, all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all of its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself, be ready, you and all of your companies that are gathered about you, and be on guard for them for many days. After which you will be visited in the latter years, you will come into the land of those who were brought back from the sword and gathered from the many people on the mountains of Israel, which had had long been desolate, and there they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely, which is exactly the condition of Israel today, 
And you will ascend like a coming storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your many troops, and all of the peoples with you. And so here's this list of names, again described as some people groups that are actually going to be around during the very last days. Days that for us are still actually future. But in conjunction with this final assault on the nation Israel that we call the Battle of Magog or the Magog invasion is another way to look at it. And it's striking that this battle is going to come because it's going to be some very prominent nations that we have historical understanding of who they are. Because Meshach is actually preserved in a name that we would associate with Muskvoy or Moscow or with Russia. Tubal is, is a Russian city that we would today probably call Tbilisk. So this is an area. And so Rosh is the modern name. It means in effect red, which would be the national color for the nation Israel, but it is associated with Russia itself. So This is a clear declaration. There is going to be in the last days a group of nations that are listed in the table of nations that are going to survive to the very end and they are primarily going to be Russian-speaking peoples. Why should we care? People always like, who cares? If it's historically accurate, oh well. Well, you ought to really care. Because your Bible says in the last days that there are going to be a group of nations that are going to gather together and mixed into that group are some very strange bedfellows. Anybody know what Iran was called in 1979? Persia. Anybody know what North Africa was called up until about the 1940s? It was called Kush. Ethiopia, Kush, Put, these are all nations that today are largely Islamic. And they will ultimately join together with Russia and they will attack Israel. What's going on in Syria right now? You have the Russian army that is building bases along with Iranians and with Indo-European help. They're building bases just about 60 miles to the north and the east of the border of Israel. And in those nations are the very nations that are listed in your Bible. North Africa, Libya, Ethiopia. So your Bible has been very clear in assembling this group of nations that one day is going to mount an all-out assault on the nation Israel. And so when you look at what's going on in Israel today, uh, and you, you ask yourself the question, well, why would Israel you know, send fighter jets to destroy Iranian weapons, Persian weapons, on a Russian-built base in the middle of Cynthia, formerly occupied by the Carpathians and those who are from Togarma and Gomer, why would Israel do such a thing? 
Because your Bible says in the very last days that those nations will rise up and attempt to destroy Israel. So when they begin to spout that rhetoric, when the supreme ruler or the Ayatollah begins to say, uh, Israel has no right to exist, that our goal is ultimately to push Israel into the sea, that one day our plan, our sworn plan, is to erase Israel from the face of the earth, they actually mean that. It's not political rhetoric. It is the end time scenario which your Bible says is deeply rooted uh, in this table of nations because virtually every one of them is listed. And their area, their region, their family unit, their language, in essence their original area of population is in fact exactly where we find them today. So this table of nations is some pretty interesting stuff. When you start to look at the world today, uh, there was an article. It was actually in. It was first put in the Times of London, but the Times of London did an article on on President Vladimir Putin's connection and actually his fascination with the last czar of Russia, the Romanov family, Tsar Nicholas II. And so as he's fascinated with this final czar, interestingly enough, he was the last czar to actually control all of this area. And so Putin says, you know, I think it'd be a really good thing if we brought back at least the landmass. So what's he been doing all this time? He's now invaded the Ukraine. He's invaded Georgia. He's invaded Crimea. He's already in Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan heavily in Turkey and in Iran. So these nations matter. And I believe God listed them for a reason so that we who are alive and well at this time in human history can go, you know, I've seen this play before. It's this coming invasion. And as you read through the book of Revelation, which we've studied here, Uh, And you look at this army of the east, obviously there's only one nation on the face of the earth that could ever field a 200 million man army, and that is only China. They're the only nation that has enough people. And so we know who that army is. And then you look at this group of nations that's going to rise up, and you look at the Russian army as as it exists today, then you can do a quick Google search, you'll find this out for yourself. Russia has roughly between their regular army and all of their various branches and their reserves, they have about 3.5 million people. I can tell you right now, that's not enough for them to attack Israel. Israel is the second most technologically advanced army, air force, and navy on the face of the earth, second only to us. And they have weapons that they don't tell everybody about. You travel there with us, we'll go past some installations and you know, Amir, our tour guide, will tell us, yeah, well, we have things inside of that mountain that are gifts for the Russians. Because they believe that the Russians are absolutely an existential threat to their existence. So your Bible records these, these, think of it, these and only these nations all the way back to the history of the earth before the flood. 
God wants you to know that you can read the Bible and trust it. And so when you begin to dig through some of these other names, you're going to find that they're linked not just to Indo-Europeans, but also to the Tartars, to the Greeks, uh, even in some cases to uh, parts of China. And so all of these nations are actually listed here so that we can sit here and go, you know, when that starts to happen, it is time for us to look up and realize that our redemption draws nigh. Because God's told us who these nations are going to be. Now I can tell you who is not associated with Israel. Every last one of those nations. Most of them do not have embassies in Israel. So think about it. Every man's hand, your Bible says, will be raised against his brother. And as all these things begin to unfold, you have a little bit of a preview uh, of those very last days. Here's the good news. Uh, if you're here tonight and you love the Lord Jesus, uh, rapture time. You will not be here to see all of this ultimately unfold, though you may be here to see the very precursors to all these things, which will ultimately happen. And so you would expect for Russia to be taking over the Baltic region. You would expect that Russia would invade uh, all the way up into the border of Israel. You would expect that Russia, through Iran, would be feeding weapons into Lebanon and Syria and even Jordan, even though we happen to have a fairly large military presence uh, inside of the borders of Jordan as well. We have quite a few of our fighter jets actually stationed there. So your Bible is very accurate. And if you look at the world today, uh, your, your Bible will be found to be true uh, in every sense that it speaks to these things. So as we move back uh, to, to the sons of Japheth here, uh, we'll go through a few of these and, and wrap this up for tonight. We'll cover the rest of the list with a little bit different take on it uh, next week because there are some additional details that are important. So as you move back, you'll, you'll find uh, first Madai, uh, almost all linguistic authorities believe that these are the Medes. So what was the Persian Empire actually originally called? It was called the Medo-Persian Empire. So again, this links together yet another son that's also listed here, and it's found throughout history as the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the name of Javan is actually uh, transliterated, if you will, to Ionia. How many of you know what one of the Grecian peninsulas is called? It's called the Ionian Peninsula. You know what the sea is called? It's called the Ionian Sea. So we know that this is linked to the Greek people. And as you look at the history of Israel, who were all, where, where did all these people end up ultimately going? So you have the Romans, you have the Greeks, you have the Medes, you have the Persians. Uh, where did Jonah flee to? Anybody remember that? Tarshish. Guess where he's from? Tarsos, Spain, Carthage, and North Africa. So Jonah, as he flees, when we see him, we've already had described for us that there were peoples that would spread to that region of the world, 
And so when, when we hear this story of Jonah ran away to Tarshish, we know where Jonah ran to. He went down the other end of the Mediterranean, and he was going to have a nice little vacation there on, in essence, the south of France or the south of the, the Spanish coast. And you find also within here, you find the history of the Phoenicians, the great seafaring people that were headquartered in which two cities, which are also found in the book of Ezekiel, none other than Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician people, which were centered in modern-day Lebanon. And so you have a very accurate history of the entire world of that region. Everything from the north coast of Africa to the southern coast of what we would call Europe today. And so all of these people up to and including, look at the sun here, the Canaanites. So you have Canaan. And when you travel to Israel today, one of the things that you will hear, you will see, you will read over and over and over and over again, these are Canaanite dwellings. This is a Canaanite wall. This is Canaanite pottery. This is a Canaanite settlement. And then you have the history of the Jewish people always, guess what? On top of the Canaanites. So if the Canaanites were first, and Abraham was sent to the promised land, and in the promised land, there were these giants in the land that when Joshua and Caleb came and they saw the giants and they said, we ain't going in there. Because there's a fearsome people there, and they have massive cities, like Jericho. Guess what kind of city Jericho was? A Canaanite city. And so your Bible's giving you the history of the world. So when secular archaeologists begin to dig through structures like Tel Dan in northern Israel, and here are these giant walls, and they go, you know, these are not Israelite walls. They're Canaanite walls. And then they find the altar built to Baal, dedicated by Zerubbabel, who tried to bring righteousness to the Canaanite peoples. It tells us a whole lot about our Bible being excruciatingly accurate because it's exactly the history of the land. So these are beautiful things for us taking our Bibles and reading them and saying, man, if God gave us all this incredible detail in history about the peoples of the world, I'm pretty sure we can trust the rest of what he said is that meticulous about who's living where. And he is that meticulous about who is living where. You see, all of these people... Very well historically documented. Kittim uh, is a linguistic reference to the modern-day island of Cyprus. Doadim, uh, if you've ever seen, the, anybody seen uh, the, the artist's rendition of the giant, uh, this huge statue uh, of the giant of Rhodes that stood over the harbor. Okay? This is, these names are all given to us. It's associated with the Dardanelles and with the the giant Colossus of Rhodes, uh, the name Japheth itself, the last son, Tiras, uh, the Thracians, part of the Greek Ionian Peninsula, was occupied by the Thracians, a very fierce people. And so you have the Phoenicians and the Thracians. You have the mainland Greeks, the Ionians. You have the Macedonians. 
Every last one of these people is identified in this list. And so you can imagine to the amazement when people begin to study these, well, we've got the Thracians over here. Ah, rats, they're listed in the Bible too. And these Canaanite peoples who, by the way, loved conquest, so they left uh, a pretty healthy amount of information about who they were, so we know about them. All the way down to tourists giving rise to the, the, the Acrusians who uh, founded, in essence, the southern part of Italy. So you have Cyprus off the coast of Italy. You have southern Italy inhabited. You have the Greek peninsula. You have all of Europe. You have all the way over to India. You have all the stands, so Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, that whole region of the world, Persia itself, which used to be larger, which would have included all of then Iraq as we know it today, uh, which ultimately is going to be uh, found in a couple of other names. And so as we move through these, the next account of the sons of Ham. And so you, you have... Uh, the modern name for Ethiopia. You have the modern name for uh, the Egyptians. You, you have the modern name for Libya. So all of these nations now have been set up to where we can look back through all of this history and go, man, God told us exactly who was going to be living where. And to this day, there is no refutation in essence of any of these facts. And then the final group that we'll look at tonight before we wrap it up as the Canaanites, these ancestors who, who would bring forth uh, eventually this one son, Nimrod, who would uh, found a very specific people. So you have the Canaanites who were in the land, and Nimrod, who is the founder of, guess who? The Babylonians. So now you have the founders of the Assyrians, the founders of the Babylonians, the founders of the Persians and the Medes and the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Carpathians. You have the history, in essence, of every single group that will be further mentioned in your Bible as you get into all of this description uh, through the life of the kings, through First and Second Samuel, through what we call the historical books, through the time of Judges, as, as you get to the conquest of Joshua, you're going to find all of these people and their history basically unfurled before you. And especially this final son uh, who would be a world ruler whose name would be Nimrod, uh, who in effect is the founding father of the Babylonian people, again, the mortal enemy. So God took in his infinite wisdom and says, these are the peoples that you are going to encounter as you sojourn in this region of the world these people will actually seek to overtake you, but fear not, for I am with you. God's word to the Semites, to the Shemites, is always going to be, I got this. But he tells them in advance, when you get to Canaan, it's not going to be good. When it comes to Babylon, they're not going to be thinking good things about you. When it comes to the Medes and the Persians, they're actually going to, even though they'll send Cyrus, a Persian, uh, to, to set you free. I'm going to use him. I'm going to use this king, this pagan king, to set you free. It's not going to go good. When the Assyrians come, not going to go good. And in the very last days, and this is why it's so important, there's going to be a reassemblage of all these nations and they're going to come against Israel. So as you see that begin to set up, you want to make sure that you have your ticket punched for heaven, that you are rapture ready, 
Because should the trumpet sound, and we who are alive and remain uh, exit the earth, you want to be in that group. Because what's going to happen after that, God describes in great detail in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. God's good, isn't he? He gives us all these things so that we can know beyond any reasonable doubt that he has told us the truth. That he's given us this march of history that even mentions Nimrod. And when you, when you travel to modern day Iraq, the ziggurat of Nimrod, Nimrud as they called it, still exists to this day. The Babylonian Empire, the, the remnants of it, still there to this day. Nineveh was home to this very people. The Assyrian conquest, all these things. So when you begin to look back through your history, you just go, wow, my Bible's accurate. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. Worship team's going to come back out. We'll have some pastors come up and be available for prayer. Trust your Bible. It's historically accurate as far as it speaks. And it is most importantly prophetically accurate with what lies ahead. So, Father, thank you for the wonder, the power, the majesty, the accuracy, uh, the forethought that you put into recording these things so that as we look at our world, we can say, yep, that's right. That's also correct. Those people were there. You described them for us. You, you've given us uh, insight into things that were in the past, and you've given us a preview of what lies ahead. And so may we be found ready uh, in that time, Lord, when you draw near, when your time of the, the end of all things has come. Thank you for grace that allows us to be available uh, to you to work while we're still here to watch and to wait effectively. Pray that you'd bless us, God. Thank you for this time in your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.